0: Live Exchange is the major event for the livestock export industry and it's being held this year in Darwin on the 10th and 11th of November. Open to all members of the supply chain, the conference program features thought-provoking and informative speakers, trade exhibits and social events. It's a great opportunity to find out more about live exports and registrations are now open. Visit liveexchange.com.au to get your tickets. To the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home.
1: Helen Kemp was born on Macumba Station in 1950 as the fourth generation of her family to be involved in the S. Kidman & Co. Pastoral Empire. At the age of 16, Helen moved to the Northern Territory and to this day she has never left. Everyone knows Miss Helen and Miss Helen knows everyone. She is a true treasure of the Territory And in this episode, she shares yarns from the early days when her family started working for Sydney Kidman to where she is today and what she has seen and learnt over the past seven decades.
2: I grew up in the north of South Australia on a property called Macumba, which was owned by S. Kidman & Co. My parents met in Ududadda after the war and I have three siblings, all girls, and we did distance education through the Port Augusta School of the Air and then later we went to boarding school in Adelaide prior to my parents moving to Adelaide in 67 for Dad to take up a position as the pastoral inspector for S. Kidman & Co. I've come from a pastoral background. Um, by both my father and grandfather, Ernest Ravenscroft Kemp, and my father, John O'Connell Kemp, managed McCumber Station for S. Kidman & Co., um, Macomber is just out of Oodnadatta. It's about 48 kilometres, I think, northwest of um Udnadatta. Of McCumber covers 6,000 square kilometres, square miles, I think, and along uh, with two other stations, Oringa and Hamilton, they total 10,000 square miles in the old measurement. They carried about 20, 21,000 head of cattle in, a, in the good times and uh, Dad said it was uh, it was way overstocked for that type of country. Uh, my grandfather was on the Kidman payroll for over 50 years and um, he worked on Peak Station with his uncle, E.C. Kemp, Ernest Courtney Kemp. He ran away from home apparently when he was 12 from and home was Morgan on the River Murray in South Australia. Grandfather um, was advised to take over the management of Macumba in 1915 and um, a telegram had sat at the railway siding for a couple of weeks and by the time he received it, he had to set off on his horse the next morning to take over from the manager at Macumba. So that was, I can't rem- I'm not too sure how far that was quite away. My father John was born at Macumba uh, in 1920 um, during a big wet season and, uh, Grandma Kemp wasn't able to, to get out to, Oodnadad to get on the train or the plane to go, go south. And, um, apart from, um, dad having four and a half years in the army, um, during World War Two, um, he was on Kidman's payroll when he was a young fellow to, after he came back from boarding school. And, um, yeah, until 1972 when he was, he retired virtually all I can remember of those years me growing up it was mostly in drought time and when I was 10 I went away to boarding school so it was a large station um, it was on the edge of a creek which wasn't didn't have water in it all the time um, the place has artesian bores everywhere um, I don't think. I think there might have been two windmills that I can remember seeing at, at Macumba. So it was just these flowing bores or cat bores. Some of them didn't flow as far as, as the others, but there were quite a number that used to just go for, for miles. Um, the homestead was quite substantial. There were a lot of sheds. There was, um, a lot of Aboriginals lived there, um, who'd been there, you know, at one time on Macumba, dad said there were, about 300 that used to live on that, on the lease. Um, we had, as children, we had a governess when we were going to school and mum had a cook and we had stockmen that usually stayed two, three, four years and that used to do the mustering and the mustering was done on horseback. Sometimes they had pack saddles and other times they had a, they called it a bun cart or a buggy pulled by camels to take all the gear and the food um, when they were mustering. So they would go away for weeks and mm-hmm. weeks. We had a um, 32-volt generator and a free light. You know, the, the little windmill um, power used to pump. No, I have no idea what that <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, the, the free light um, put energy into a battery a battery bank mm-hmm. um, for 32-volt power. So, it's different to the lights here. This is 240. That was 32. Um, we had, um, what else do we have? We didn't have air conditioning. We had fans a little water cooled, um, evaporative coolers so that you could just move around. There wasn't a big, I don't think there was a big one there. Um, the kitchen had a really old fashioned stove. This is the main kitchen for the Stockman and everyone. That was huge, huge old stove. Dad used to, grandfather used to cook breakfast, and Dad used to cook breakfast. Apparently, I can remember helping Dad anyway. Grandfather used to have make huge messes, and he was a great cook of bread. He could cook. He used to make bread straight into the calico bags, mix all the dough, and every morning he used to do that. So then we 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 got a cook. I guess when I was going to school, well, I can remember the cook. I can remember one other cook there, but I, I can't even remember her name now. We had a separate building where the cook slept, our governess slept, which was Anne Cadzo and Amy. And we slept up there with them. It was quite a way for mum and dad where they slept in their, in their room, which was, I don't know why that was. In the summer, mum would make a stay. If it was really hot. We were there in the sixties that Unidata re- reached Phenomenal temperatures and still holds a record for the highest temperature. We weren't allowed to go outside had to stay inside with a fan on us and, um, wet sheets over, over my sister's cot and with the fan blowing on to keep her cool. So I guess I, I suppose we thought that was fine. We didn't know anything else. So it probably okay. thought it,
1: you probably thought it was like Christmas when you had a wet sheet
2: over the fan and I know. the cool air coming off that. I hadn't experienced air conditioning until I went to Tennant Creek in the late 80s when I had an air conditioner in my house, wow, and a fan. Did you find that really cold when you first got to use an air conditioner? I soon got used to it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was great. Adaptable, very adaptable, Adaptable. Helen.
1: (laughs) Now, what about horses? I hear that there were a number of horses at Macumba and that that was a big part of your childhood.
2: Yes, it was. We all had Horse each dad used to get them in, um, especially when we came home from boarding school. They were all in the stables being fed and we had to ride them and everything. Um, but they had a huge plant, as they call it, a huge, uh, working group of working horses. And every year they used to muster the horses up. Um, they were sorted out, uh, broken in for that year's muster. I can remember one year with all these horses that they got the walkabout disease. As they call it, you know the indigofera mm-hmm. that grows, and and I can remember this sad time where they had to shoot most of them because they've all got it because it was a you know had been a dry time and then the, the rains came in and then all that plant grew and um and after that it was just one day just clicked with me. We all used to have there were a lot of thoroughbred type horses, you know that and they weren't coloured horses. Then one day I said, oh, I wonder why we were all riding coloured horses. And Dad used to talk about these horses that came from Engemar Station down around Cooper Pity, and that was the reason they had to go and buy all these new working horses to replace all the horses they lost with the, the birds' wool or walkabout disease, whatever you want to call it. And that was sad, yeah. So. But the horses, we had some nice horses to ride. In
1: 1965, your dad got a promotion within S Kidman and Co, which is Quite impressive, and but that unfortunately meant that you guys had to leave the station and move to the city. But you were at boarding
2: school at the time, so tell me about that. Oh, that was a fairly sad time for me. I'm not too sure about my sisters how they felt, but I, I was quite upset that I wasn't going to call Macumba home anymore. Anyway, so so Mum and Dad later in that year moved to, to Adelaide, and they bought a house and in a sort of nice suburb in Adelaide. And then we became day scholars and um, I wasn't really doing that well at school and mum and dad, I was year 11, I think, and then I went off and did half a year um, at a business college. So then in 1967, I came to the Territory as a governess and I can remember the group of governess coming through Dada and blow me down, there was my old horse, Silver Dollar. He was a creamy horse with black points. I couldn't believe it. So he used to just live around the common in Udnadatta And a friend, Gary Birchmore, said how they used to go and catch this old horse when they needed him to help yard up cattle and everything. He'd <laughs> just go and catch him straight away. Yeah, so he was just lent, to, given to friends in Udnadatta, in so...
1: So yeah. when, when your father got the promotion and you were required, or the family was required to move to Adelaide to work out of the S. Kidman and Co head office, you had to leave all your horses behind at Macumba.
2: Yeah. So, some of them were given and sold to some kids in Pony Club in South Australia. Yeah. So that was a bit sad. Anyway, we, we weren't in a position that we didn't have any land, although my aunts had a paddock down at Goolwa on the coast in South Australia.
1: So after growing up on a cattle station and then having to leave, you it didn't take long, though, for you to find your way back to cattle station life because once you left school at the age of 16, you headed up to the Territory to be a governess on Phillip Creek Station, and that was um, a bit special because it had a connection to your family as well. Tell me about that. It did. Um,
2: Anne Cadzo, her, her um, maiden name was Amy, Anne's mother and my mother, Sisters, and Mum asked Auntie Lorraine whether Anne would like to come up to Macumba to be my governess. So she, I think she was there three years. So so that's how that all came about. And um, in in those years, and then my others, then I went to boarding school, and and I think we had another governess, and I went to boarding school. My sisters had other governesses as well. So. When I was, um, Anne was due to move from South Australia. Anne and Dick moved to South Australia to Phillip Creek Station, which they'd bought in the early sixties, just north thirty k north of Tennant Creek, thirty miles or thirty k fifty k north of Tennant Creek. Anyway, she asked if I would like to come up to be a governess for a year, and Mum said, "Yeah, I can stay for a year." So <laughs> six years later, I was still there. <laughs> So (laughs) so
1: Anne had been your governess, yes, and then you ended up becoming her like Um, governess for her children, for Robin
2: and Stephen, and um, so it's lovely that I've got Stephen here at Matt Riddick now and and Beck, so done the full circle. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's
1: very um it's it's very small uh small world, World, and everyone. Not only does everyone know everyone, but everyone seems to be related to everyone. So
2: yeah, the, the years at Phillip Creek they were very um Anne and Dick. Work really, really hard to get Phillip Creek back on track. It had been run down. Their house was just virtually a cyclone shed. It had been, and they lined it and added on over the years. The, around the house, it was just bare, nothing. During the dry season, we used to have these huge dust storms, often had huge dust storms, and then and I'd clean up in the evening, sweep all the dirt up, go to bed, probably the next day, We'd get the cycle of winds where it blow for about seven days. So that was, that was nice. So I was there for six years. We used to often do school on the weekends, um, or if we had to muster during the week and sort of all those fun sort of things. So, and Anne and Dick were really busy. They, Dick had dug out, um, the water holes to extend all the watering points around the place because he'd been in, his business had been, um, heavy machinery in the agricultural land around in the southeast of South Australia. So that was always digging out this one with a, this water hole with a D8 and, and Phillip Creek at the time, the pastoral lease had a lot of mining leases on it as well. So there's lots of the mines were being developed around Tennant Creek on that, on that Phillip Creek lease.
1: What was the social life like in Tennant Creek back in those days?
2: Well, Tennant Creek was a mining town, but there was, they also had a, um, a Pico mines just out of Tennant Creek. There was a, people used to live there as well. There was a shop and you could go, even go shopping there in the supermarket. And, um, I suppose you could call, could have been a bit rough and ready because Tennant Creek was a very, dry town for a long while, as in no water, and it wasn't until, I can't remember what year they got reticulated water. It was just before I went there. So how how
1: did they get their water then to?
2: Well, they used to cart it from out Tennant Creek Station just to the north um, you go across tenet, the Tenet Creek itself, and there was, a, was some bores there. So
1: they near were the cart, old telegraph station. Cart water from the station to town, so people could. Look,
2: oh, it shout. was from the near the old telegraph station, yeah. which was on the Overline Telegraph. Yes, and that's, that's, it, it never used to have many trees around it. So in the old days, it was pretty, pretty hard living, you know. So, and in those days, we didn't really go to many social events. We go up to Renda Springs for the races and camp draft and uh, races and rodeo, and. um and we had some friends who worked, lived at the mines, and my first friend, her parents worked in Tennant Creek, and um, through the other friends that worked at, lived at the mines, so we got—I got to know her, and we used to go to a, a few functions here and there. You know, when you didn't have a car, then we weren't so mobile as we are now.
1: Oh, so so you didn't like you didn't have a personal car or the? No, I didn't
2: have a personal car, but we had the station car. We used station, to go together, yeah. and that that. Tennant Creek had a drive in. So we used to go to the drive oh no, first of all we had the walk in picture theatre in the main street, opposite the Goldfields Hotel. Then later on they built the um the drive in
1: that's uh yeah. it's just fascinating to think about because there's not a lot in Tennant Creek these days I mean there, well there is but it I I, it's, I suppose there would have been a time where there was a bigger population and like you said there was a cinema and a drive-in whereas today it's you know then that's happened with a lot of towns across Australia, Australia you kind of have right. their boom and then they kind of wind down a bit um what about in terms of being able you know you're a young governess you've got Two two children to look after. Did you were there other station hands on that station?
2: Yeah, we had a f- yeah a couple and a lot of Aboriginal stock when that came from Tennant yeah. Creek from the area. Yeah, so um, they used to come out for the mustering time, and yet other time we Dick and Anne and. Kids and I would help if I, would, you know, for the times that I was there.
1: And what about for you though? Making friends and being able to socialise with other people your own age was that? Did you have to come into
2: town for that, or do you? Did you just? I, I wasn't. I wasn't really that social, I suppose. But we, we used to also go to the Alice Springs show, so that was an, every year in July. So that was nice. So I made lots of friends. But also, Anne and I used to go. We used to go to the get-togethers at the Alice Springs School of the Air, and. Um, so that was nice. So I've got friends from way back then, in the seventies, who I'm still friends with. So, so that they worked on Undo. you down at Deep Well, Bond Springs. So, um, so that. That's nice. So I've still got those, those connections.
1: So somebody we had on the podcast earlier in 2021, Tanya Heeslip, was going to School of the Air in the late 60s, early 70s. So you would have been like known her governess, most likely. I did,
2: yeah. And I knew the, yeah, the Heeslip family. I used to stay out there and um, we used to go. And also the kids, we went on the school camps and, um, oh, I was mortified the other day. I was looking at old photos of us with all these Heeslip kids were there too and I'm looking at photos with feeding the children breakfast and there I was standing with a cigarette in my hand <laughs> near the fire cooking the cigarette oh god you wouldn't even think of doing that now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they so I had used yeah. to have lovely times out at Bond Springs stayed there for you know off and on for years so that's lovely
1: so you ended up being a governess in the territory from about 1967 to 1989 for two different families. Talk to me about those years. What was involved in the job and what
2: your memories of those times are? Originally at Phillip Creek, the lessons um, we received were coming from the South Australian Correspondence School. So they were quite antiquated lessons. And when I can remember opening up the, um, the lessons and they're exactly the same as I Got when I was in, um, 1955, when I was going to school. And at Phillip Creek, I can remember getting amazed because the school teacher allocated to the Cadzo, to Robin Cadzo was Mrs. Casseboam, who was a family friend in South of my parents, my mother's family friend. And they've got, there's this same lady that taught me, was teaching them, you know, gosh. (laughs) <laughs> it was amazing. Anyway, after a while, this Northern Territory Education Department, there was a transition where they started taking over the um, the paper lessons and uh, writing their own cu- curriculum. And first of all, the School of the Air operated out of the Flying Doctor Base. Um, down the track, it went to uh, near the Braitleague School. And that whole area, as you drive into Alice Springs... And you go around to bend this ill on the, on the Todd, that there used to be a race course there and all that area in there was just the big Alice Springs Turf Club. Okay. And so the School of the Air shifted up to the other, uh, School. So then everything sort of changed. They were writing their own curriculum. We used to go in for in schools, um, into Alice Springs. They used to have a governesses a week where we, um, sort of, they gave us pointers on how to teach the children. Um, we had, a get together where the kids were doing sports and bits and pieces around town, and how to you know to go to the library and things like that. So that that happened every year. Those sort of events, but um, yeah, it was good when the Northern Territory Education took over. It was a you know much more advanced, and the teachers used to also do yearly and or t- twice yearly patrols. They flew out or drove out to visit the children wherever. And, um, what else happened? So we had a better studio set up. The radio system was, was better. Um, and we weren't part of the flying doctor network where you'd get interrupted. You might start your lesson and then there'd be a medical emergency. So that was the end of the lessons for the day.
1: That must have been quite, um, imagine being a a child at school and you're having your English lesson or your math lesson and next minute you're getting a, you've witnessed some kind of, some, you know, to. a, A call of someone you know needing help in generally an emergency situation, Mm. that would be a lot to take in for a child. That's right.
2: Yeah, it was, and and I suppose and and the worrying thing for me as being the inverted commas teacher or home tutor was just thinking, oh, am I helping the kids too much? You know, are you giving them too many clues? You know, and um, so so that was. Yeah, that was sort of always worrying and you know, I, but I think now, oh, must have done all right, you know. <laughs> yeah. Look at Veronica, she's a teacher. Look at Sarah, how long, well, she's done and she's in the public service and, you know, doing what she does. So, and, um, and look at Stephen and, and uh, um, and his sister Robin, you know, so they have all right, they haven't. But we used to do, um, like in those days at Philip Creek, we often used to do, um, with, you'd have to do fundraising and I can remember, um, Steve and Robin and I, we, we, had, we did a ride So we, we had to go around Tennant Creek with a little booklet. We, we, um, the kids, we drew up where we were going to go ride and how much we could give a donation and how many kilometres it was to this bore and to that North Star. And then we had to go around town and ask people, could they donate towards this, this ride-a-thon with something to do with fundraising for School of the Air? I think I, I think I ran a Jim Carner or something in, in, um, in, in Tenner Creek to raise some money for the Alice Springs School of the Air. So that was fun.
1: How did you go, uh, just just jumping back to that social side of things, how did you go, you know, being so isolated and then really your main company was just children for those times that you did get to get off the station? Were you pretty, ex- you must have been pretty excited for that?
2: Well, on one occasion, I've just met up with this friend after about 45 years, just recently on my way back here. And she was the overseer's wife at Helen Springs. And she lived up on, as you, at the Helen Springs turnoff, you go up this jump up and you're heading towards Renner Springs and there used to be the Wrights road train base. And her husband, Jim, was the overseer for Vesties-owned Helen Springs then. So she, she they used to have a break-up party for Helen Springs every year in October because it was a Bullock depot, then all the staff, all the main staff the stockman all went on holidays so she said to a friend of mine who's been a friend since cuz she was she's left and she's retired and, and went to the coast and Molly courts owned a um gift shop and Trish went in there and said do you know any girls we're having this break up party and we want to invite some girls to the party so my friend Lynn was working on Newcastle waters at the time oh I know Helen and Lynn we can invite them so we got letters and Said some of the fellows had come and pick us up. One would go to Newcastle, one would come and pick me up. So, so that's how we got to know these fellows, all the Helen Springs blokes, which was really nice. We used to go, we met up in November, um, again for the rodeo up at, we used to have a rodeo in November at Renner Springs. And then it came sort of during the, um, Christmas period, there was not much work on Helen, so they, because if we didn't have a telephone, but we had the RFDS network. you get your telegrams, and I used to get a telegram, pick you up on Saturday at so-and-so time and go to the drive-in. And then they, the fellows would come and drop us back to the station. One would drive Lynn, my friend, all the way back to Newcastle Waters.
1: Wow, and that is a fair drive. <laughs>
2: it is a fair drive. I just
1: love the idea of you getting a telegram when <laughs> you're going, Dear Helen, Stop. I'm coming to take yes. you to the movies. Stop. Like, do they? <laughs> Whereas today, like, you're lucky if you even get a snatch out from someone being yeah, like, oi, coming <laughs> to get ya. You know, or meet me here, drive yourself in. Like yeah. that sounds, it sounds so romantic back in those days. I don't know if it was, but it just sounds I like said it was. To,
2: I said to Trish just the other day, you know, a couple of months ago, I said, do you remember doing this? She said, I'd forgotten all about that. <laughs> so I remembered
1: um, it. Anyone, if you're listening, I would love for somebody to send me a telegram, be like, Hey, Steph, well, I'm kind of oh. taking you to the movies. And then Stop. we used to,
2: when they used to come, come back from the, go past the mailbox i used to stop there and and have scotch or whatever and then one day said oh we'll trick dick cats so he'll think that somebody's left a bottle of scotch in there and they fill it with tea or something oh. and i left in the mailbox <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's yeah. so cheeky but such like good old-fashioned honest humor <laughs> yeah. like just just honest humor though um Although in saying that, that was a dishonest thing to do, but you know what I mean? It was just yeah. old-fashioned, like, yeah. nice humour. Um, so after working on Mount Phillips Station, which also for people who've been listening to this podcast for a while, you might remember that name from Lucy Daly's episode because yeah. the Daly's bought that station in maybe the 90s yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah, so that's the second second appearance it's made. Uh, you went to go work on another station for another family uh, who are still involved in the pastoral industry today. So tell us about that.
2: Um, I went to work for Miriam and Ellen Hagen to be Veronica Hagen's um, governess. The Hagen boys, Alan and John, married the Elliot sisters, was Miriam, and Patricia, or Topsy as we called her. Topsy was married to John and Miriam was married to Ellen. And Ellen M- and Miriam owned M- Muckety, which was previously owned by Miriam's father, her parents, who took it up. Mackay before the war, World War Two, yeah. So, so that was um, Mackay is there's Phillip Creek and then Banker Banker and then Mackay. So it's 130 kilometres north of Tennant Creek. And, and south of Renner Springs, and yeah. surrounded by Helen Springs and those places.
1: And so the Hagen kids, you said you were there to be Veronica's govey and there was also Steve and another one? Is oh, right? Steve
2: and Jim. They were yeah. they were um, John and Topsy's oh, boys. Oh, they were the cousins?
1: Okay. Yeah, they
2: were the, the, yeah, the, the Muckety Hagens, and uh, – The Brunchill, and they were Brunchilly, the other Hagans.
1: Oh, okay. So yeah, so so they were just down the road. Just down the road. Okay. And so the Brunchilly Hagans, where I just said, you've got Steve. Steve is the manager of Mount House in the Kimberley. So still involved in the industry. Uh, so yeah, it's such a small world, but tell me what it was like. You ended up being there for,
2: for 12 years. Yeah. Um, I left in 89 when I joined. They sold Muckety and I stayed there for the handover and then I, got a job with Department of Primary Industry in Tennant Creek. And, uh, yeah, so they were, they were different years. They were, there was a time when I wasn't governessing. I just, I used to go and cook in the camp, drive the truck and bring, at that t- stage, Tennant Creek had an abattoir.
0: So oh, wow. I used to bring in
2: cattle that they, you know, yeah. they didn't sell anywhere else and sometimes just a body truck and, and come in. So I learned to do that. It was quite funny the other day I'm talking about my truck license. I had Beck wanted my license for something, and she sends a message back: "You're holding back on something on us, Helen, because I had the truck license still." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Well, I won't be driving your trucks."
1: Yeah, no, you could. You should be pulling <laughs> more weight around here. A r- literally age. pulling more weight. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, so Muckety, the Hagans, um, were involved in the horse racing industry. They were bred thoroughbreds as well, John and Ellen. So, and they started up, uh, had lots to do with the Brunette Race Club and the Renner Springs Race Club at Renner Springs. And, um, yeah, so we always had thoroughbreds there and people dropping off mares for their stallions and, and things like that. So brunch, Brunchilli had Herefords and Muckety, Merriman Allen had, um, short hordes and had to put a lot of drought master into their herd. So, um, and they did lots of work in the years that I was there as well. Um, the gas pipeline went through on the western boundary of, um, because it's just below, um, Newcastle waters as well. Um, got tick fever there one year, which was after the big wets in the 70s. You know, that was sad. Yeah, so. Yeah, so I did all these sorts of things. I used, to, I used to go on helicopter spotting or opening gates for helicopter pilots when they were mustering it to put the cattle through. So I think during the wet season that the ticks moved south, um, and they did, and they were bigger those number of years. So they get bit, bitten by the – they call it red water as well, don't they? Um, it's called the oh, red water fever, mm-hmm. and, as that's one of the other terminologies they use. So they just get weak. Lay down and die for a while. They thought it was just three day sickness, but it wasn't, you know. And, um, so then Miriam and Alan had to have dips constructed so that they could dip the cattle. And we, well, I think we had three big dips done. So that was more expense for them.
1: And so that's a cattle dip. So that's putting the cattle through it's basically. They it, kind yeah, of went through dip. like a little, little swimming pool Put, of yeah. chemical to kill the ticks, ticks because the yes. ticks were carrying some sort of I can't remember if it's a um it's not an infection it's or a vi- it's not a virus. It's a something yeah. that they carry and that infects the cattle though. It's infectious yeah. and, and causes them to become sick with tick fever and can really knock them about or if not yeah. kill
2: them. And in those years um we had a lot of helicopter pilots used to come and go mainly from Heli Um so and then we but they still mustered on horseback as well, but just to get to get the cattle in and they used to use the horses too to to uh to yard them yard up mainly so yeah so so that was they were developing their herd and and when um Merrri and Allen used to often go to Darwin for the races in August for the Darwin carp, and I often used to stay there especially when Sarah was little, stay there on my own and with one Aboriginal man. He used to stay there and, and help out. And, and so that was good. And he always tell me where he was going to make sure that I'd go and look for him <laughs> <laughs> if he didn't get back on time. So yeah, so they were, they were nice years too. So lovely years. During those years, um, when I first went there, I used to go to the Renner Springs Amateur Race Club meetings up at Renner Springs and Miriam was the secretary and, um, there were quite a, a lot of very vocal men in the district at that time, you know, and, um, and I remember Miriam used to break out all of these nervous hide, hives when they all started arguing. So from there, I, so she'd say, Oh, can you go and take the minutes of the meeting? And I used to go out there, take the minutes and everything. So it got to eventually I became the secretary of the Renner Springs Race Club. And I was, I was for many years, I was the secretary actually up until. Oh, there was breaks, but at, when it folded, I was the last secretary for the Renner Springs Amateur Race Club. So I used to go and do a lot of work at Renner prior to the races and they were nice times. We had lovely race meetings and people, it was really, in those days, Brunette and Renner Springs races were the main social events on the Barclays and you had Boralula up north and Mount Isa Radio in Mount Isa. So, um, so they were nice. We used to have, you know, we used to get lots of visitors, you know, from the administrator to the politicians used to come. Um, we used to have horsey people from down south be dropping off race horses and things like that. So, yeah, so I met lots of people and being involved with the race club and started doing the camp drafts and the nominations and camp drafts started to really go ahead. And, um, I started taking photos, um, of people getting their ribbons and things. I used to do the races and do the, the camp drafting. So that started getting bigger than Ben Hur. People say, oh, can you get a photo of me, you know, getting my ribbon and everything. So that were the days where you had to get print off three sets of prints or, you know, whatever, so they could sell some for 50 cents, you know, at the next camp draft you went to. Yeah, so... I've still got a lot of those records. It's silly, isn't it, to keep them all? Oh, you've
1: got how many photo albums? Is it seventy-five? Seventy-five photo albums from your time in the territory, which is just. Incredible. Some would say insane, but I'll go with incredible. (laughs) Um, That is something you've become quite well known for within the territory community is Miss Helen and Miss Helens. And I guess that's the other thing we should mention is that even though you haven't been a governess for over 30 years or maybe a little bit longer, everyone still calls you Miss Helen. That is what you're known as. (laughs) And, um, Miss Helen and Miss Helen's event calendar and just your involvement in the community. So you were, you said, you know, a secretary on a couple of committees, but you've been involved in various committees, various events, uh, organizations, uh, like the, uh, Isolated Children's Parents Association, the, um, the Country Women's Association, the CWA, um, all all sorts of things. And you had a very famous events calendar for a long time, which I understand there is a sort of a, a movement getting together at the moment to try and um, force you into bringing it back. Yeah. You've got to give the people I what they want. I know. <laughs> but um, tell us about the events calendar.
2: Well, the events calendar started was started by an, a friend in Alice Springs and – she worked for DPI and Alice and she was the, the regional director's secretary. So she used to come to, oh, when are your camp draft events? There'll be Brunette and Daly Waters and Renner. And we used to just put the, the Tenant Creek show and things like that. We used to put on, and then they used to send out this calendar to all the, the pastoralists in the Alice Springs district and, and Tenant Creek. So from that, it got to, I started sending a, pu- a Excel spreadsheet was one page. My friend Felicity PhiltFulcher, she said it used to be one pages. now it's eight. <laughs> but anyway, I um, started building and the department people would be ringing up, "Oh, we're trying to get this workshop. you know, When's all of this? Um, what's going on next year?" Um, <clears throat> Paul Stone. From Mount Sanford, he was the first one in October that wanted the calendar so he could work out his mustering program for the following year.
1: <laughs> so, so he could I line had to up really with all the camp drops and radio Get myself
2: into gear. So it was really handy, you know, for for planning and, you know. Yeah. I think one one year I got the blame because – Calls Creek and Kununurra put their events on the <laughs> on the one same weekend. But I said, I'm not I'm just the messenger. And yes. I'm not the organiser.
1: Also I'm not even in your state. So no, calm
2: no. down. So we uh, so I was distributing them to Queensland, um to Victoria, New South Wales, the big camp drafters that are, you know wanted to follow the circuit and Helen, to,
1: we need the calendar back. And
2: I, I, I had it all categorized into stations and and then I didn't know whether oh I should just do a Facebook page or or whatever. Anyway, I'll have to work on it again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do. Yeah, I have heard that there are some people there and they want the calendar back and they're just working out their strategy <laughs> to convince you to bring it back. But um, I suppose, yeah, so in, in addition to the calendar, there were so many events that you've been involved in from when you first got up in the Territory in the late 60s to today. I mean, you were just in town the other week doing some stuff with CWA. So yeah. tell me about... The, you know, the events that you'd be involved in back in the sixties and kind of take us up into today. You don't have to go through all of them, but what the events were like back then compared to today. I mean, these days you go to a camp draft or a rodeo and there's, you know, you've got your, your, your token characters and some cheeky people and certain things happening. Was it, was it the same back in those days?
2: I think, I, I think it was. I remember going to the first brunette in about 1974, I think.
1: Like the very first
2: one yeah the very first time that i went oh, okay. and um so in those days um we used to go around each evening to each other's camps and socialize you know and after the the dance had finished because i used to go sometimes all night not now where they close at 12 or whatever so that was nice we sort of got to meet up with lots of nice people um
1: and uh, what else Oh, you told me there were um some dances
2: in town, like in town halls, where people used to get quite dressed up. To- oh, at the yeah. Brunette Races, it was just really formal, you know, those sick, late 60s, 70s, all the gloves and the um, sequin stuff and stockings. And I can remember one man was the secretary of the Brunette Race Club. Oh, he got so upset if a woman didn't have stockings on. And she got really? Best Dressed Lady Oh, he was just mortified! Oh, you cannot... blasphemy!
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, and we we that hall at Brunette used to really was just full. Just you weren't allowed to drink in the hall. That was the other thing, and the kids could sleep in the corner, you know, behind the stools and everything. So they were very formal when you just get bell of the ball, and you know.
1: Uh, are there um? So where where was the hall at Brunette? Is that kind of near where? Like, is it not there anymore? It's still I've... there. Yeah, whereabouts? I was going to say I've only been. You know to where the you know
2: where the uh, secretary's office is now on the container up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that big hall, just there. Oh, I don't and, think and there's a big paddock in the front with the saddling paddock for the races. Yeah, it's been there forever.
1: I don't know if they actually used it for anything. No,
2: last year because
1: the, the the dancey bit was sort of outside in yeah. the bar area. So we need to start a campaign to bring back a formal, <laughs> a black tie. The old fashioned. The yeah, they oh. have they have the dinner there. The Oh, uh, the Barclay Cattleman's
2: dinner? No, 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 the dinner there for the um, presentation um, every couple of years for the Brunette Race Club. Oh, okay. Sometimes I've had art exhibitions there. We put on a huge oh, – helped help coordinate that huge historical display for the Brunette Race Club in 2010. Yeah. And um, so we're going to do that again this year. Wow. And, um, yeah, things have changed. Um yeah, they were, they were really nice. We used to have nice times around the fire because most of the time now they just go down to the hall. They don't sort of socialize much. The brunette, brunette in those days when I first went was owned by King Ranch. And, and oh. if you remember, King Ranch used to have the W, the running W, they <laughs> called it, their brand and they'd have it down at their camp. It was a man who cooked there for years, Pommy Bob. He used to save up T-bones all year to, and have them frozen. Um, at Brunette and then they put on this huge barbecue. He'd get dressed up in the white hat and everything, chef's hat. And, um, yeah, and sometimes they used to have a horse sale and a bull sale when they used to sell their Santa Catrudas and everything. Yeah. So they were, you could all get a free beer and.
1: Now, yeah. where, um, was, was camp drafting as big an event back in those days as it is today? Cause I know I only went to the first part of Brunette last year and. There were hundreds of runs and I guys, I mean, oh, I know it can be fun, but man, it's boring. And I think even if you're riding, like until that moment where you're like in the camp and actually doing a run, man, it is boring and a lot. It's a bit and it was they combined the um brunette with the Tenant Creek draft last year. So it was like two weeks of drafting. I know. Which I think is hell. <laughs> Hence me only going for one night. But well, you know, did you have hundreds and hundreds of,
2: of no. runs? No, it wasn't until I don't, in the eighties. That it started getting really, really big. And I can remember going in in October. They had a camp draft school there with Terry Hall and Chrissy Hall. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Bill Bright still talks about it because that was a school he went to and then just started getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, they had to start on a Thursday and a, or Wednesday, I think in 2010. And some on Friday morning and then all day Friday and, and once upon a time, the rodeo was held on Sunday. Um, the camp draft followed after the rodeo. So it was all, the rodeo and camp draft were all over in one day.
1: Wow. And so before camp drafting was big, it was mainly just the rodeo and I guess, and a, and a race meeting.
2: Perhaps? And the race, in the race meeting was sort of separated. It was on a Saturday and a sun and a Monday. Oh So wow. the cup day was on a Monday. So there was the Sunday was the rodeo day. Wow. Then the camp raftings has got so big.
1: It's just snuck its way it's, in and then it's completely taken over everything. I know,
2: I know. And Tennant Creek has got really big, you know, got really big there and, and this one here at Hearts Range has got quite big too.
1: And what about, say, so like these dancers in the halls, when do you think they started to kind of die off and fade out of the social well, scene?
2: I was listening, listening to Miss Shardy the other day on her podcast and I was thinking about... I wasn't a governess then, but when she came to work at Alroy, and I reckon around about prior to that, I think the dress standards had gone down a bit at Brunette. We were all just going in jeans and that every day, even on cup day. Then I could hear her once talking about, you know, who's going to wear, you know, this for the races? And I've got ordered my material. I'm going to make this and the hats and all that. So I, I really think that she got that up and going again oh, where wow. they really started to dress up and the big hats and, you know.
1: Would that have been, that was in the 90s that yeah. she would have come up? Yeah. So do you think it was the 80s? I mean the 80s was pretty casual most places and even their high fashion wasn't really that great. Do you think like?
2: Yeah, I think it was. We'll just you blame know, should, the I 80s. I should go back
1: and look in my photos again yeah. and go back. <laughs> and see where do we see the first <laughs> pair of jeans in the town hall
2: dance? Like, well, I can just look, I can remember my friend Lois and I, and Lois, she was marrying Pat Hagen sisters, me, Pat Hagen sisters, we used to be there in our jeans, so, yeah, so we. We got a bit slapped too.
1: Oh, imagine um, imagine the gentleman, the secretary, who was, you know, self-ended if a woman without stockings got vest dressed. Oh. Imagine if a woman with jeans got vest dressed.
2: Oh, God, he, he would Oh, <laughs> He'd he would be die. rolling over. <laughs> yeah. So he was always very dapper. He wore the little hat and he always had a suit and he was very formal. Oh. Always. He used to be the bookkeeper on Hollow.
1: <laughs> oh, that sounds so adorable though. I can't. We're definitely going to have to dig, dig out some of your pictures and <laughs> pop them up online for people to see. <laughs> What another yes, time uh, to be in.
2: And another event that was major in my life was in nineteen eighty eight, prior to me leaving Markite, was Droving Australia, where the Northern Territory's Bicentennial project it was when they got cattle donated from all over the territory and they put them into a herd. And um Alan Hagen at that time was um made stock manager and so they got all the Cattle Rally in the year before and then in May 1988, we had a big camp draft, um, bore on Newcastle Waters and we must, they must up all the cattle. Um, some of them actually was, were, um, at Longreach already because it was a drought year. So that was a huge, a lot of money was spent at, t- to hold these big concerts and had a big camp draft, um, had the boss driver who was Pick Willets, who was known throughout the driving fraternity. So um, so um that was a big year. And I, and I um did the camp draft, organised that side of it. I didn't do the comment, but I did all the book work, you know, driving around through the old Parkinsonia behind Spellball, getting everyone's nominations, mm-hmm. and up till about you know, 3 o'clock in the morning. But I also had to supervise about 25 young people between 15 and 18, um, in the Droving Australia camps that we'd had that had been set up throughout the territory, so that was a great, yeah, that was a great celebration, and we had kids that came from all over Australia, and um, had all these camps from Campfield down to Alice Springs. You know, so, what
1: what was Droving Australia? What was it? The was a of it
2: was the major for the bicentennial for Australia, so that was Northern Territory's contribution, and when people went and donated five head or ten head or whatever. And they put them into this big herd and they were going to be like, we're going to have this epic cattle driving trip to Longreach. From, really? Yeah, from Newcastle Waters.
1: Okay, so cattle all came and they kind of collected at Newcastle when you drove them across yeah, to Longreach.
2: Yeah. There was a bit of a disaster on the way because they had to TB test the cattle along the way and some of them, there were some reactors in them. So a number of them had to go to slaughter, which was a shame. And I think Mount Riddick... Historically, the Webb brothers, who own Mount Riddick, um, used to always put a white bullock in with their cattle when they had them driving, and he had to go to, to the avatars, and Aww. it was a bit sad. Yeah. So anyway, so I ended up in the camp at New, at Longreach when we had to deliver the cattle to the Hall of Fame, and the money from the result from the sale of those cattle at Cramsey Yards at Longreach um, that went towards the Hall of Fame for. Mm. So that was a huge event in That was in that September. That sounds
1: massive. And now I just want to pop back to what you were saying before about – um so as a part of that, you had the camp draft or the the big event at Spellball and you were going around taking nominations and that triggered my memory of – you told me that, you know, so these days anybody that either camps drafts or, you know, just, just in this day and age, you generally nominate online. Yes. It's all electronic or digital, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, and then back before then, there would have been paper nominations. But I think when you first started out, like, you actually went and got people's, not like you actually,
2: yeah, we didn't them out have, a lot. they didn't come in the mail. They were there on the day. So you got them all yelling at you over the microphone. Oh, where are the nominations for the novice and all of that? Then you had to sort of go and get everyone's nominations. And I had a little system of, um, first of all, I had some leather buttons with numbers from one to a hundred and then did the draws like that. Then they got over a hundred. So, I got lots of buttons from DPI, this <laughs> different coloured ear buttons for the ear tags, so I used to do them in blocks of 20 so I could sort them easily and write the numbers and do the draw out of a hat. And then, you know, so that's how it was done. <laughs> Absolutely. Until, you, until we got Excel and you could sort of um, sort the you know, sort them sort of like that as well.
1: Yeah, so for anybody organising an event in this day and age, if you think it's uh, difficult, just, yeah. just be grateful you didn't have to go back and get your nominations on the day and sort them and then.
2: Yeah, and I had sort of originally um, there was a girl up at um, Kalani, Netta Wharton, she said to me, why don't you do your nominations like this, this and this and close them? I said, oh, dear. No way in the world could I say we're going to close our nominations a week before, you know. But some of the systems I used, to, you know, how we used to pay people and everything, they carried on. for, and People used to use my version of the nomination forms for years after, you know, so I suppose that's a feather in my cap.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's many feathers in your cut, Miss Helen. As people are learning, you've, you've been but around and it I didn't mind doing it,
2: and- it. I got to know all those young fellas and and the Gillaroos And and after, and another thing, after 1988, driving Australia, we had those groups of children. I can't remember how many all together because they were all over. They had camps at Brunette and you know up on Alex, and you know went along with the herd, and some were in sort of just like. Um, around Al Tungra, I think they were going to have one there, trail ride or something. And it was a big flood in Alice Springs in 1988, too, when Prince Charles and Di came. And it got flooded out one of the camps. So those kids all came to Muckety. And from there, we met Sally Town. She came to that camp. So that's how we got to know Sally. So, and Then later on the next year Sally's friend Heidi McMaster that's up at Iffley in the Gulf. So we had all these girls, it was mainly girls, all came back, a lot of them came back the next year to work in the stock camps.
1: You know, I think I remember Sally telling me something about that. I'd actually recorded a podcast episode with Sally a long time ago, maybe almost two years now, yeah. and then after we finished recording, something happened and my computer crashed. I lost the entire thing. Yeah. And um, it was quite an emotional episode for Sally because we spoke about um, – her experience with breast cancer, among other things. And I was like, oh, God, I'm not going to make you redo that. I'm not. Well, we'll do that another time. But I do remember Sally saying, you know, something about going up and then, yeah, her and her friend came back. Um, and they were like the, some of the first Jillaroos in the territory. Yeah. And so for people listening, Sally Town, Kimberley Country Department Store, Go Go Station in the Kimberley, used to be at Helen Springs managing with her husband.
2: Um, so long time pastoral industry person, but, yeah. and they were all, oh, yeah, wow. they, they came back and worked at Alroy for the Millers and Gavin and, and, um, Narelle Miller was the managers there. And then they went on to Brunette. And in 2016, I went to, um, Vicky bright, Ricky priest she was. Her father died and he was buried at Corilla Creek. His ashes were spread at Corilla Creek. And Jeff Wagstaff came back and I took all these photos of these girls that worked when he was at Heidi and Sally and there was, um, who else was this? Uh, Sandy Hagen that married Jim Hagen. Anyway, I took all these photos and I lost, inverted commas, and I, this week I found them. Last week I found all these photos that I had saved on my hard drive but I couldn't find them. So they're going to be very – Jeff's going to be very happy that I found them. But um so all of those girls, you know, you see them every now and then. So they – I was living in Tennant Creek at the time and when those girls used to come to camp drafts and, or come into town and they used to come and use my houses, you know, to have a shower, et cetera. So it's nice to make those friends and I'm still, you know, friends with them all. And
1: so after working at Muckety and after the driving Australia, so a year after that, you when Muckety was sold, you moved into Tennant Creek and took a job with the DPI or you know Department of Primary Industries. I mean, it's gone through would have gone through about a million name changes in the thirty odd years that you were there, but Ag, ag Department, more or less. Yes, yes. Um,
2: tell me about life in Tennant Creek. Life in Tennant Creek. Well, I moved in there. I had the Muckety truck, which was loaded with what furniture that the Hagens didn't want. So that was my little life on their truck and um which I looked after the truck and the yard the house that I'd rented for a while. So when I got the job, I think originally they really needed someone who could talk on a two way radio, could understand it. some of the girls who were in that office were just so frightened of it. So I was used we had we used keeping um I used to help out, um and pass on messages and Meet helicopters and planes at the airport if they needed ammunition to, to load up and everything. So we had well, maybe seven outposted stock inspectors in the whole Barclays, which was, which was a lot then. There's two now, mm-hmm. only two in the whole DPI office in Tennant Creek. Yeah. So, um, so I moved into Tennant Creek. Um, but I also knew a couple of girls, um, who were sisters. One was in the hospital. They were both in the hospital. So, we had quite a good, nice social life. So we all knew, and, um, there was another fellow, Julian, he, he now, he used to be, work on Brunette. And, um, so, and I knew all the stock inspectors from, you know, from being around in the district and everything. So, and we had some nice vets in those years. Um, so, Jeff Neath, he was there at the, no, he was just b- b- before I got there, but he, he was with MLA later. So it's, so we had a, some nice social life. It's, they were the days you didn't have to lock up, virtually lock up your car or your house in Tennant Creek, which has changed a little bit now. <laughs> oh, just but, a little um, bit, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, they had discos, we go to four o'clock in the morning. Um, we had a group, there was another vet in Tennant Creek of, oh, Old vet, he's passed away now. So we used to go every Sunday. We used to not every Sunday, maybe every couple of Sundays, have dinner at his place, and he'd say, "Miss Ellen, it's about time we had dinner at your place or at my place." So that was nice. So and then what we often used to all go together to the Daly Waters Radio, and and I was sometimes helping up there. By that stage, anyway, I used to come to Brunette. and so it was a nice social life in Tennant Creek then. So we knew lots of people, went to the Memo Club, and oh, and um, when some of the, the Sally Town and her friend Heidi and and some of those girls from Mount Bush, um, and I often used to get a phone call from a manager saying, "Oh, we've got one of our ringers in town. He's come off the horse. Um, can you?" Go and pick him up, and so to have this young fella laying on my couch, you know, a couple of days recuperating. So they were good. The girls used to, the girls used to come and go when they came into Tennant to train the racehorses. So, yeah, so that was nice. So they'd have a shower and wash their clothes and and all of that. So Miss Helen's hostel. <laughs> it was a hostel, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so so it was it was not, oh, And I had another friend whose friend came. Can't say his name because he's no one. In the department. But anyway, in the morning I got up and I said, What in the hell is this all over the floor? And there was, you know, how you have a little jar with all your one cent, two cents, five cent pieces? Yeah. You get one cents and two cents now. Well, go. what's been going on here? <laughs> be, they were used to have these wrestling matches, you know, this is sort of this competition between these men. Oh, God, that was funny. We still talk about that. And so what, were there coins all over the floor or? Yeah, there was everywhere going oh, up on my shelf here, there's one on the lounge,
1: you know. So they're just like knocked over some, like during their wrestling matches, yeah. they're just knocked over the coins, yeah. okay.
2: I was like, where are you going uh, with this? These poor boys. Anyway, uh, so there's another young fellow. He got hurt in the bull ride, so he's lying on the couch. And I, he said, can you come and help me if taking taken off their boots? And oh, I need some jocks and some t- toothpaste and all of this, you know. And sometimes stations forget to pack someone, can. Comes in on the plane injured, and they forget to put toothpaste, and tell them to grab their wallet, and you know all of that sort of stuff. And they come with nothing, yeah. just themselves.
1: <laughs> so you you have ended up, I guess, being a, a bit of a pseudo mother to many, a you know, not only just the kids through school of the air, like your your Govey charges, but also jackaroos and jillaroos yeah. throughout the territory. That's nice.
2: Time. Well, there was one girl I hadn't seen her for years. I'd sort of forgotten about her, and she was working for Julie Newton in. And Jeff Newton and Catherine. And, um, she said, don't you remember the time that I came and stayed with you and I had the toothache? Oh, I can't remember that. She was at Alexandria at the time. She said, you made me put oil of cloves on my, (laughs) on my tooth because she couldn't get to the dentist for two days. (laughs) Have you tried that? It's foul. No, thank you. Yuck. Yeah. Um. So all those little things come up and go, oh yes, I do remember now.
1: <laughs> wow. You've certainly had a wonderful, full, full and colourful life, Miss Helen. Um. to wrap up looking back on it so far and and hey your papa bear i think we established in a in a different podcast episode that papa bear lived to be 92 (laughs) you know he had a very good run so we've got still a couple more decades to to squeeze out of you
2: not too sure about that yeah
1: we definitely do (laughs) definitely do especially living out in paradise here i mean clean air beautiful Mm. views good company oh. i think you'll it's the perfect uh, environment but uh looking back on life so far not life in general because there's still a lot more to come for you but um but so far what would you say you know
2: what stands out to you and what have you learned along the way oh. oh i've made some really really lovely friends and long-term friends and done a lot of different things i don't think i would have done if i hadn't had that opportunity and started volunteering and 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 doing all that, and and sort of having. Then I got a car when I got first got my. I've had about three Falcons, I think, and then two Prados. So that sort of gives you the freedom too. And you know, and when I was working in Tennant Creek, I used to often set off after work, three o'clock in the afternoon, drive to Daly Waters or Katherine just to take photos at a camp draft or something for a magazine that I was helping put out. You know, so yeah, so I wouldn't have done all those sort of things. I don't think. <laughs> so I've had a lovely time and met lots of interesting people, you know, from the, from the, ad, to the administrator of the territory, to the, you know, to the politicians, to all those young, lovely young people out Bush there that used to come and talk to me while I was doing, um, nominations and things like that, you know, and sometimes wanting to tell me too much, which I didn't really want to know about, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, people filling you in their love lives. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, just too much for Miss Helen at that time in the morning. Um, what if you could give a piece of advice to people listening? What would it be?
2: Oh, piece of advice—just go and go. What you you know? If you if you like, oh, just just go for what you think you should sort of. If you're capable of, you know, I'm not. I don't drink very much, but. Um, so, I think that's sometimes that's what I could do because I wasn't drinking and everything. Well, I used to drink a little bit but but there was always um you know plenty to do and help out with, and you know just just help out where you can and be nice to people and I heard this. Manager's wise talking about some kids, jackaroos and that once. And I was a bit upset and I thought, Oh, I'd hate someone to be talking about my child, you know. Then so I, I, I always used to go out of my way to try and remember, remember the young people's names and everything. I'm not so good now because I don't deal with that all the time now in nominations. So yeah, I had a good life. So I'm lucky. <laughs> and I love the bush. I just, just feel out of place when I go into the city all the time, you know, so dying to get out the country a bit and see that wide open spaces. And I love that country that I first grew up in, the sand hills and the stones. And then I like the, love the Berkeley tableland and I love this country.
0: Charles Darwin University's agricultural and rural operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end agricultural industry, while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an Outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations. And we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au. And we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.